What did it mean for Edmund Burke, the great philosopher-statesman of the 18th century, to wield principles in the thick of politics? How did his historical method inform his political theory and practical approach to institutional reform? In this podcast, I speak with Cambridge professor Richard Burke about Edmund Burke's complicated legacy as a philosopher in action and his many attempts to hold the British Empire accountable to the norms and standards of responsible government. Hi, everyone. So welcome to Beaconsfield podcast. I'm really privileged today to be sitting down and speaking with Professor Richard Burke. Professor Richard Burke is Professor of the History of Political Thought at Cambridge and Fellow of King's College. In 2018, he was elected to the Chair in the History of Political Thought at Cambridge and also as a Fellow of the British Academy. He's currently working on the philosophy of history since Kant and the history of democracy. Today, however, we're going to be speaking about the person who inspired this podcast, Edmund Burke. Richard wrote a book in 2015 on Edmund Burke titled Empire and Revolution, The Political Life of Edmund Burke. It's here, right? So this is the landmark study of Burke's life in ideas and politics over the last five years, and it's attracted many accolades and distinctions. And personally, it's been one of the most remarkable and memorable pieces of scholarship that I've ever interacted with. It's had a huge impact on my thinking about Burke, my interest in him, and has brought him to life in a way that affirms his relevance for the modern day. So thank you so much, Professor Burke, for coming on today. Great to talk to you today. Yep. Cool. So how about we start off with some generalities? Not all of our listeners are going to be familiar with who Edmund Burke is. So who was Edmund Burke and what do you think his relevance is to the way we think about institutional reform and cultural change today? These are the big themes of this podcast. Okay, well, I'll, perhaps it might uh, be best if I just say a very little bit quickly about his life and then turn, on to, turn, turn to your main question about relevance. Well, Burke was born in Dublin in 1730. I'm going to turn off my email. No uh, worries. Yeah, that happens. It happens. Uh, he born, yes, he was born in Dublin in 1730 to a religiously mixed family. His mother was a Catholic and his father was a member of the established Anglican Protestant Church. Um, he attended Trinity College Dublin as an undergraduate, uh, but he then moved to London uh, to study for the bar. Um, he never became a practicing barrister because in the meantime, he sort of became caught up in the world of letters essentially, but also became a man of business. And it's from that latter position that he um, made a sort of sideways move into politics as the um, secretary uh, to the Marquis of Rockingham, who in 1765 was essentially prime minister. Um, and from that position, Burke then stood for parliament and became an MP in, at the end of 65, beginning of 66. And his career thereafter was largely determined by um, the events which were thrown up uh, by Britain's position in the wider world, and of course domestically as well, um, as these affected Parliament. So it's his parliamentary career that shapes his life, essentially. So the relevance of all that is your quite the relevance of him to us today. I find that a very difficult question to answer. I'm not a, I'm not a big relevance person, uh, unfortunately, from the point of view of your question. Um, what I think he adds is he adds depth to our understanding of the period. Um, that's to say, 
sort of period of major transition around uh, uh, the rise of the European empires and um, the impact of the French Revolution. So he adds depth and complexity to our understanding of that period, which is in turn essential for understanding how we got to where we are. So I think of his relevance as being um, indirect. He's one voice amongst many who contributes to our understanding of um, our historical position by understanding it um, relative to um, his, him amongst many other people. So I don't, uh, I'm not uh, deeply committed to extracting doctrine. However, there are lots of doctrines and I'm happy to talk about them. That's, that's wonderful. I guess we can start off on an aspect of that legacy question, I guess, where what's intimated by your response there is that people have done that to Burke, right? They've extracted him and taken his legacy perhaps out of its context in a way that's not necessarily helpful. And early in your book, Empire and Revolution, you make this point that the scholarship has traditionally treated Burke as two Burkes, right? There's Burke the liberal reformer and then Burke the conservative. Following on from your comments just then, to what extent do you think this distinction is an oversimplification of Burke. What are your thoughts on that? Okay, well, what you say is correct. There have always been, as it were, left and right Burkeans, uh, or as you put it, um, a liberal school and a conservative school. Um, one immediate problem is that as sort of disembodied or trans-historical ideologies, liberalism and conservatism, had no traction really uh, the period in which Burke was living. Uh, both are doctrines that emerge in the 19th century, uh, later in the 19th century. He dies in 1797. Um, also at the same time, a further complication is that liber liberalism, if we were to treat it as an abstraction, is associated with a set of principles, whereas conservatism in a way is associated with an attitude. Um, so, I mean, it's perfectly possible to say that there are elements of Burkean thought which end up being perfectly conformable to um, or compatible with elements that come to, come to con constitute liberalism. That, 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 that's true. Various uh, constitutional principles, uh, various principles of government, uh, various attitudes to trade. Uh, we laterally associate uh, some of those. Um, ideas or doctrines with what came to be called mm. liberalism. Liberalism itself not being a static um, ideological phenomenon, but something which is itself in um, complicated development over the last uh, 250 years. Um, so that's liberalism. Conservatism as an attitude will, of course, uh, many, many political positions incorporate within themselves conservative attitudes. Uh, Stalinism, uh, has elements of conservatism. Um, welfareism has uh, elements of conservatism. I mean, in other words, most political positions want to conserve themselves. I mean, there's an argument to be had perhaps about anarchism, uh, but even anarchism wants to conserve values against the state. So um, if you look at these, therefore, as abstractions, um, they're too abstract to help us, by which I don't mean they don't guide us at all, because they can point us to certain principles, uh, which Burke did at the time uh, seek to support. And of course, there are some things that he wanted to conserve and other things that he wished not to conserve. Um, 
so uh, you know i i view these things somewhat more fluidly and i don't get anxious about compartmentalization academics get very anxious about compartmentalization partly because of antecedent ideological commitments and the determination to see past thinkers as being on the appropriate side if you liberate yourself from that i think you end up with a more interesting um field of inquiry on your hands that's deeply interesting because what i wanted to ask you about next was the proper way to read burke and you know you write in your book about burke's philosophy of history for example and it seems like especially from reading burke and your own work that burke is trying to affect this shift away from abstract thinking separated from the circumstances or the historical and social conditions that give meaning to actions and I was wondering if you could speak to us about what Burke's philosophy of history was and particularly what it meant for Burke as a philosopher in action. This philosopher statesman trying to use historical and philosophical thinking at the time to affect institutional reform interventions in, in Parliament. Yeah, well, that's very interesting, partly because very complicated. I mean, I think mm. Burke's age was an historical age. Um, and uh, I think if you compare political and moral reflection in the 17th century, which, which tends to be more deductive, geometrical, a prioristic, and so on and so forth, um, in some cases empirical, but in that case inductive, um, by comparison, by the mid 18th century, a lot of um, thinkers with a philosophical interest in politics, um, Hume, Montesquieu, uh, Rousseau, um, Adam Smith, uh, many of them approach their subject, the discipline of politics itself, itself through an historical frame. Um, and really, I think in a sort of world historical, within a world historical framework. So they're both interested in, as it were, the history of man, uh, that's to say the anthropological development of the human species over time and the steady progress and complexification of human development, moving from, um, crudeness or rudeness steadily towards refinement and what that trajectory entails, what um, positive acquisitions come with that and what losses accompany it also. So that's the sort of big picture philosophical histories that you begin to get from the 1740s, 1750s onwards. But at the same time with Burke and his contemporaries, especially with Montesquieu, there's an interest in viewing contemporary regimes comparatively, and that means uh, comparatively in a contemporary context, but also in a, an historical context. So that's to say, if you're interested in European politics, you might be interested in it by comparison with ancient Europe on the one hand, um, but also uh, by comparison with the East on the other hand. So there's a, a tendency to juxtapose modern politics against uh, ancient and as sort of European against um, the politics of the so-called um, Orient and compare and contrast those regimes, but also within Europe itself, an interest in comparative uh, constitutional analysis, um, republics versus monarchies, France versus Britain. In any case, my point is these, these are all um, historical configurations or ways of framing politics that's essentially historical. And I suppose the argument would be that um, such historical um, depth um, gives one political orientation. So 
uh, his, an historical study of politics orientates uh, one with respect to political possibilities. So in a, in a way, that's a sort of general framing. So it gives depth to political judgment by giving it weight of historical analysis, uh, essentially. Right. That's, that's really interesting because something that you do write about in your work quite a bit is political judgment. What is political judgment and how did Burke use it? How did he think that we could cultivate it or how did he cultivate it? Uh, well, that's uh, an interesting and, and um, complicated question, really. I mean, it can be approached from various angles. First of all, as an analyst of politics, what should political judgment be in, in that context would be um, a first sort of stab at the question. And for Burke, um, it had to be uh, first and foremost, um, well, it was, of course, a moral enterprise and therefore it had normative dimensions but it didn't involve simply, as it were, the naked application of normative principle indiscriminately to political reality. So it had to begin with um, the empirically given, uh, the sort of substance of politics facing one. And that empirically given reality was of course uh, an historically embedded one. It was not just the here and now, but the here and now as it had come to be constituted by uh, the past. So political judgment essentially meant, of course, having one's uh, normative prescriptions, but um, activating them or anim animating them in the context of that uh, richly textured historical reality. So that's, as it were, you know, philosophical analysis, which is um, geared towards uh, judgment informed by um, historical texture. But of course, then there are the uh, political judgments of politicians. I think Burke would want to uh, make two points there, or at least I'll make two points on his behalf, which is that, um, of course, there are personal um, attributes, attributes which lend themselves more to sound political, or better to sound political judgment. Uh, and that would include um, uh, uh, the um, independence of one's position. I mean, if one, is, um, if one is suffering under exigency or desperately advancing one's own cause, then obviously that would um, impoverish um, judgment. Um, the sort of uh, depth of experience of affairs uh, is another key attribute. I mean, in many ways, uh, the way to think about the um, attributes of the state, statesman is by contrasting uh, what Burke thought of as ideal statesmanship with the case of um, uh, French revolutionary um, representatives and administrators after 1789. And he basically associate, associated them with um, sort of um, desperate willfulness, um, lack of um, experience of affairs, um, a sort of uh, disputatious litigiousness uh, rather than a capacity for um, grounding principles in, um, in uh, a wider commitment to overall welfare. So there are, in other words, in addition to the philosophical view of judgment, then the practical views of the statesman's judgment. But a very important final point on that would be, of course, it's absolutely essential to see that political judgment <clears throat> is not just a personal attribute of the philosopher or the statesman. It's an attribute of a regime as well. And um, a constitutional regime 
pits one set of judgments against another set of judgments. I mean, insofar as constitutions involve balancing and or separation of powers, in effect, they're balancing and separating judgments. So uh, sound political judgment is also a function of sound constitutional arrangements. Uh, so that's the sort of final uh, point I'd make in that context. Yeah, wow. So the next question I was going to ask you was about why Burke preferences reform over revolution. And I guess that's really got something to do with where you just left off about preserving arrangements. So I guess, yeah, that's, that's the question I have. Why in France, for example, is Burke so inclined to try and preserve and reform rather than to, you know, radically upend the existing order? Well, I mean, I think the best way of answering that question is to begin by looking at his understanding of revolution itself. Mm. Um, partly worth bearing in mind that the meaning of revolution is undergoing transformation in this period, really, um, partly in response to what had happened in uh, America between the 1760s and, say, 1787, uh, but more particularly and more sharply in response to what had um, happened in France, but also one might say in a relevant key, what had happened in India, I think, because Burke sees uh, the um, experience of India under the East India Company as, as having been a revolutionary one. Um, the basic point though, is that a revolution for Burke, if you just take him, his understanding in the 1790s, really had various components. And it first of all meant primarily a re resistance to a regime. Uh, so in a way that was no meaning, um, uh, resistance to state authority. So that continued to be part of its meaning, but it also meant fundamentally transforming society and government itself in the process. And in a way that's especially what Burke was um, objecting to, revolution as abolishing the means of reform uh, in the process of revolutionizing society and politics. Um, so in a way, he associated for that reason uh, what was going on in France with, with what had gone on in India. That's to say, uh, both the French revolutionary regime and the East India Company in South Asia had treated their respective territories as countries of conquest. Um, as if, um, first of all, it was legitimate to um, abolish all um, institutional bulwarks and prescriptive norms. Uh, and second of all, as if it were um, rational or prudential to do so, because once you've abolished um, all the means of advancing political causes, then your only choice is to... Um, advanced political projects uh, by, as we might say, by fiat or uh, despotically. So um, revolution for that reason, and it's sort of mature meaning, essentially for Burke um, uh, in, meant a sort of politics of um, abolition or annihilation, and therefore simply wasn't conducive to sensible political goals at all. And Reform, of course, was just uh, a means of advancing a political cause. Um, and uh, for that reason, it seemed like um, a more um, rational approach. But of course, reform itself covers a multitude of possibilities. But that, to begin with, is at least the stark antithesis between the two. 
So if we tie the American Revolution into that analysis, is it that Burke sees that revolution as restorative of something? Is that why he supports that revolution so wholeheartedly and opposes the other two? Yes, well, Burke's um, response to developments in the American colonies between, say, 1766 and 76 um, is a complicated one. Um, because he sees the agent of innovation here as having been the British crown at its ministry. So um, a revolution, as it were, is not sparked as far as he's concerned by the colonies, but introduced to the colonies by uh, British policy. Um, and the revolution, or if you like, radical revision, um, involved placing the colonies on a new constitutional footing where the colonies had been a source of um, revenue via trade and such taxation as came with the Navigation Acts um, from 65, 60, 64, 65, 66 onwards, a sequence of uh, British ministries attempted to um, extract revenue from the colonies by direct taxation. Um, Burke thought that was a sort of um, reversion from the status quo ante. It was an upending of um, customary imperial relations. And um, of course, the problem with it was that it was resisted. Now, Burke thought that resistance was legitimate. Um, and in fact, intriguingly, he thought even ultimately when um, Britain in the sort of around 74, 75, started imposing its will more drastically, uh, Burke came to think that um, American resistance by resort to arms was itself legitimate. So that's to say on one definition of uh, revolution, that's to say an attempt to subvert, um, to rightfully subvert uh, a regime by um, armed insurrection, Burke actually justified that as acceptable in terms of political uh, morality. But he didn't support the goals of the revolution as these came to uh, be advocated after 1776. That's to, say, that's to say he didn't support American independence. And up until very, very late, even during the war against the American colonies, still sought to uh, recover the colonies and bring them back in under the empire, albeit under revised um, revised terms. So, so that's why Burke wanted to restore something. He wanted to re restore a mutually beneficial imperial relationship um, as against, on the one hand, a dependence uh, being sought after 1776 by the colonies, but also as against um, sort of, as he saw, ministerial despotism introducing um, without popular support uh, a new scheme for administering that portion of the empire. Let's let's talk about the empire then, because I mean your book's called Empire and Revolution, right? And yeah. what was Burke's ideal view, if we can call it that, of the empire, and to what extent did that motivate his reforms? For example, I've seen you write about the empire as a trust, as a form of of accountable power that the British people must wield on behalf of something. I'm not quite sure what that something is, but could you tell us a bit about how Burke views the relationship between empire and trust? Yeah. Uh, interestingly, uh, in this period, 
Britain becomes increasingly self-conscious about having an empire as, uh, as such. Um, but that was a very um, complicated uh, transoceanic arrangement or set of arrangements. Uh, and I suppose that's the fundamental point. It was distinct sets of arrangements um, which had been acquired by the metropole or stipulated or prescribed by the metropole over in turn a complex uh, historical process which is not reducible to one uniform um, uh, process. Uh, so in the, the primary components of the empire um, in Burke's day were first of all, uh, the neighboring island of Ireland. Um, second of all, uh, the American and uh, generally West Indian colonies. And third of all, um, South Asia, uh, with other uh, bits, uh, for instance, um, the Cape and um, the Far East um, and West Africa being um, areas of British concern as well. So it's a um, rather complicated um, picture. And he didn't have a uniform view about it all because they all posed uh, different problems and shifting problems uh, because, of course, the, the colonies gained independence in the midst of uh, Burke's career. And um, uh, India, the government of India, was transformed in the course of Burke's career, as with the government of, uh, of Ireland um, and the government of uh, Quebec. So. Um, these are all very different fields and they're also shifting fields. Um, and so his own views are developing. The, the fundamental point, I would say, in direct answer to the question about trust is he thought that all government, all administration, all politics should be based on some species of consent. And consent is essentially another word for trust. That there, sh there should be fundamentally a fideistic relationship between governors and governed. And if you violated that, you had no legitimate basis for uh, administration at all. So uh, that's the fundamental, as it were, a fundamental norm of politics that it should be based on trust or consent in that sense. In addition, of course, uh, politics um, had other responsibilities like um, more generally liberalizing power. Um, but of course, that was more and less possible in different circumstances. But broadly speaking, Burke's goal for what he became conscious of as the empire, indeed, uh, from about the 1770s onwards, um, was to sustain uh, consent and liberalize power. Um, but of course, that um, vocation, if you like, had been violated in the case of the American colonies, where trust was, was, was undermined progressively until uh, secession um, became a fait accompli uh, and had been uh, um, successively undermined. For instance, uh, to take the other most important case um, uh, during the course of his career, uh, the case of um, India or uh, the Indian subcontinent. Um, there, uh, Britain had um, inherited a complex situation, uh, but if I'm to put it as simply as possible, uh, progressively undermined the very possibility of trust as it proceeded in its uh, administration. So we became a sort of powerful critic of the uh, modalities of uh, government pursued by the East India Company under the authority of uh, Westminster uh, through the course of the 
uh, final third of the 18th century. Yeah, something that that I'm kind of working on myself and thinking about is Burke's intense worry, I guess, of the corruption of English manners occurring abroad in India. And so, you know, he talks about these young British adventurers going over via the East India Company to India, birds of prey, he calls them, and going about all forms of extortion and corruption in the subcontinent. Could you please tell us about why Burke is so worried about that particular group of privileged young men going over and doing that, and also what his strategy is to try and hold those people accountable? Because um, it seems to be a persistent theme, particularly in you know speech in, of Fox's, um, on Fox's East India Bill and so forth. Yeah. Well, um, Burke's um, connection to India was a shifting one. So perhaps I should begin by basically outlining um, the stages through which he moved very briefly before be addressing specifically the question about um, corruption of English manners and um, how to call uh, the East India Company to account and therefore its officers. Um, well, of course, uh, Burke's interest in India began much as his interest in the American colonies had um, in response to government action. Uh, he was, for the most uh, of his career, he was an opposition MP, so his job was largely to criticize the administration uh, of the day. Uh, and um, uh, of course, the administration's job was to increase supply, to raise levels of taxation. I mean, it was fighting uh, wars in Europe. Uh, Britain was fighting wars of Euro in Europe through much of the 18th century, and these were costly. Uh, and when it wasn't at war, we're still in debt for the reason of having been um, uh, at war, and those debts had to be uh, redeemed by some means. So um, revenue was an essential concern of the British government. And just as Britain's um, uh, relationship to America was transformed after the Seven Years' War in a state of great uh, metropolitan indebtedness by the need for revenue, and therefore, in other words, taxing economies, the same um, process began in relation to the East India Company um, from about uh, 1770, really, onwards, uh, even earlier, actually. Um, now, Burke becomes involved in um, criticizing the government's attempt, the British government's attempt to tax the East India Company itself to extract revenue from it because they see it as a sort of, uh, you know, uh, hen that lays the golden eggs. Mm. Um, and uh, Burke saw this as an attempt by the ministry to um, overextend its power. So he begins his career as a defender of the East India Company against uh, the depredations of uh, ministerial um, expansiveness, if you like. Uh, but he becomes more deeply involved from about 1777 onwards. Um, between that date and um, about 1783, uh, becomes particularly involved in developments in southern India around Madras. Uh, and later on in turn, uh, becomes highly critical of developments in north um, eastern India around um, Bengal. And basically, he becomes um, concerned by the development of British uh, power on the subcontinent, which had um, taken, um, transformed itself massively between, roughly speaking, 1756 and 65, between the date when it became 
really a military power in the subcontinent, partly by uh, happenstance or accidents, or at least it surprised Britain itself that it became a military power there, just by means of the superiority of its infantry, infantry formations and so on and so forth. But between then and 1765, when it became a territorial power, really, as a result of acquiring the right of raising or administering, really, taxation on behalf of uh, uh, the um, Mughal emperor. Uh, so now Britain was suddenly, uh, well, an imperial power in the East, as opposed to just a trading factory. Um, and from that date on, its tentacles, uh, the tentacles of the East India Company, spread um, increasingly throughout the regions of the North, East, and the South. Um, and um, by, from about 1784 onwards, Burke begins to hold a particular person responsible for this development, and that's um, the Governor General of the East India Company, um, uh, Hastings. Uh, and um, he proceeds to impeach Hastings. Um, the impeachment trial fails. Um, uh, um, Warren Hastings is acquitted in 1794 and uh, Burke's um, parliamentary career and then essentially um, in failure. So the question is, what was he criticizing? Mm. Uh, um, so what was this breach of trust in this case or how was it that the East India Company was operating? So there's a criticism on the level of criticizing individual personnel, the birds of prey, which are the young company officers um, on the one hand, and then the structural problem, which is enabling them. So um, I think it's really the structural problem that's enabling them that is the, is the, is the major problem. So it's the structure that corrupts their manners. It's very important to say that Burke's worry is not about their manners being corrupted by, as it were, mixing with South Asian society. That's not his concern at all. It's about the East India Company corrupting their, as it were, uh, attitude to politics altogether, since they are um, officials administering a territory. Now, all this stemmed from a, a fundamental corruption in East India Company politics. And Burke saw this corruption as having caused the East India Company, um, and therefore indirectly the British Empire in South Asia, um, caused it to be one of the most nefarious systems of power known uh, throughout the course of European history. And in this he concurred with other contemporaries like Adam Smith. They just thought it was a, an appalling uh, construction because of its, um, as it were, fundamental um, indisposition to be called to account. Now, that is because um, the East India Company was on the one hand a commercial enterprise and on the other hand a political enterprise. And it confused these two enterprises in a mutually uh, corrupting um, downward spiral of, um, I don't know, political um, um, uh, despotism, essentially. Um, so, uh, as the commercial enterprise, it wasn't uh, a purely commercial enterprise because it was actually a commercial monopoly. Um, uh, as a political enterprise, it wasn't a properly political enterprise because its, um, its objective was not uh, uh, national or, if you like, provincial welfare. Its, its, its project was to extract uh, profit in the form of um, 
trade or be it a uh, monopolized trade. Uh, but its goal there was to, you know, be like any uh, um, corporate uh, commercial concern was to was to, was to extract um, its uh, profit from a population. Whereas the goal of politics is, of course, not profit extraction. The goal of politics is uh, provision for national welfare. So these two, uh, the 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 um, attempt to get these two. Uh, mutually contradictory principles to act in harmony in the case of the government of South Asia was a catastrophic, you know, ended in a catastrophic disregard for um, local welfare. And this was especially prosecuted as Burke was concerned by Hastings. Mm. And he also uh, pursued this, as it were, political slash commercial lust um, via an expansionist policy. Um, in contravention of the um, um, goals set for politics by um, the metropolitan power as such. We think of 18th century Britain as sort of um, determined towards expansion from the center. Um, actually, things are a lot more um, complicated. That's to say, at the periphery, the um, impulse uh, or pressure to expand came in the form of, uh, for instance, um, the East India Company governor himself, governor general himself, um, and aided and abetted by officers who were also corrupted by this culture. So there's the birds of prey that we're mm. mentioning. They don't, they're birds of prey and passage, as he puts it, because, of course, they don't stay in the territory long. They've no sense of obligation there. Um, they are, uh, have no um, grounding in um, a more... Um, uh, fully weighted um, set of political experiences. So they're um, youthful um, conquistadors um, driven towards depredation with no system to hold them to account and no inclination to be called to account. And in any case, just as it were, passing through and uh, sucking up uh, what's available mm -hmm. to them. So the answer I wanted to do about all that can be um, yeah. uh, phrased uh, rather quickly, which is simply to hold them to account. Um, Burke, first of all, with the uh, Fox's East India Bill of 83, sought to do that by literally subjecting the East India Company to parliamentary control. Uh, but that project failed, of course, uh, because um, uh, George III uh, conspired against it and Parliament Verged it down, and the Foxites, along with Burke, fell from uh, power, and then entered, in, entered into a, another period in the political wilderness, uh, down to and including Burke's uh, death. So it's at that point that he embarked upon his impeachment, because he saw this is the only means of at least setting up, as it were, uh, a sort of tribunal, an impeachment tribunal, which would in turn establish norms of government governance, um, which would at least be an example of mm. a framework of, um, you know, appropriate uh, political morality, which would hold future uh, governors in check. So, so how did Burke design and communicate that framework? Because what's really interesting about what you just said is that you talk about there being this systemic, intractable, fundamental corruption that's working, you know, throughout this entire system. And if Burke's solution is accountability, what does that look like in terms of cultural accountability? Because it seems to me that in the impeachment, for example, he uses a whole host of 
sacred artifacts of British history, if you like, you know, mm. historical resources, conceptual resources, emotive stories that he thinks the British public are going to feel attached to and care about. Is Burke trying to hold up a mirror to nature as it were? Is he trying to say, hey, you're infringing these values which you hold dear overseas. British values are being corrupted in India. Is that his rhetorical strategy in the Hastings impeachment? And how does that therefore fold into this kind of uh, cultural accountability strategy which he's taking to this systemic problem? Yes, well, I mean, of course, it's very important to remember that uh, the Hastings trial, Hastings trial gets off to a sort of uh, great start I yeah. mean, with much, much fanfare and much public interest and, uh, um, uh, you know, um, there's no um, profound difficulty um, at that stage. But of course, it lasts... Um, you know, over seven years, um, and the presentation of evidence is extraordinarily complex and, of course, tendentious. And holding the um, audience of the law lords over protracted, protracted periods of time, for instance, Burke's opening speech lasted four days, and I think his closing speech lasted six days, uh, and that's just the, as it were, the, the book ending of the, uh, of the yeah. impeachment. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so interest had to be sustained. So that's just another way of saying a, a rhetorical strategy was um, uh, certainly re required. Um, and part of Burke's strategy was to get his auditors to identify with the predicament of um, the South Asian, as he saw it, victims of British power. Mm -hmm. um, and that much of that was he attempted to achieve by... Um, uh, as it were, collapsing distinctions and juxtaposing comparisons and making um, the situation in um, far off uh, Bengal not so different from um, the proximate uh, homestead. Um, so that was one of the that was one of the um, essential strategies of the impeachment trial, I think. Yeah, because he, I mean, from my reading of Burke and from reading your book too, it seems like, you know, it gets off to this great start. He tries to reject the, I think, the rules of lower courts being applied, but it doesn't work out for him. But he keeps going. Like, he keeps going for a very long time and he starts to lose the public interest as the trial proceeds. Um, without getting into psychological history, why do you think Burke keeps going so adamantly? What's... What's driving him? What forces are driving him to keep trying to impeach Hastings when it's very clear, probably to him even, that the impeachment's not going so well? Well, I, I think that um, will require some psychological speculation yeah. about what, what, why was it that Burke was such a uh, relentless, many felt um, histrionic um, uh, pursuer of uh, righteous moral agendas, uh, because he certainly was. Hmm. Um, I think um, uh, part of it was just uh, a sense of um, outrage. Um, part of it um, also was a sense that really very fundamental political norms had been um, violated in the case of uh, the British administration of South Asia, um, which betrayed um, very problematic 
aspects of um, the tendency of modern culture to uh, believe that power was not accountable at all. So I think if the question is, you know, what outraged him morally about mm. the conduct of the East India Company, for instance, in the person of Hastings, much as outraged him in the case of um, assorted French revolutionary regimes, I think it would just come down to the idea that um, politics could be conducted without being uh, called normatively to account. I mean, Burke did have a developed uh, Christian sense of um, the world. Uh, He did believe that um, human beings were um, answerable to a larger moral framework. That larger moral framework uh, was something to which if they didn't feel themselves uh, um, uh, to be subjected to, uh, that, you know, uh, it was going to have to be powerfully called to their attention. So I think part of it is his um, sense of aspects of modern power flating the, uh, um, uh, subverting the um, basic prescriptions of Christian normativity, broadly understood, you know, as the basic principles of humanity. So did he have like a developed systematic conception of that natural law position? Because something you write in your book and something I'm really confused about still is that there's this irreconcilable tension of sorts between his natural law position and between his kind of academic scepticism. I think you described it like that. Um, yes. Yeah. That's very complicated territory. It's yeah, very complicated yeah, sure. partly because, of course, mm. uh, Burke's clearly not a systematic philosopher. I mean, he wrote an early yeah. work of philosophy, um, the um, uh, inquiry into the original of ideas of the spine and beautiful. Uh, it's a very early work and a very sort of particular portion of mm. uh, uh, moral and aesthetic uh, philosophy. Um, but beyond that, um, you know, we can trace uh, philosophical assumptions he must have held uh, because he portrays them in other works, but he doesn't really uh, present a sort of systematic treatise-like um, discussion of matters, such matters. Mm. Um, but I think there is something one can say about it. First of all, uh, commonsensically, of course Burke was an, uh, uh, um, both a common law thinker and a natural law thinker. Uh, and of course, there's no contradiction there because, of course, underlying common law was natural law. Mm. Um, he was a common law, uh, a natural law thinker necessarily because he was a Christian and all, 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 all natural law means is essentially that, that there is um, a moral order to human affairs uh, subject to the divine will. The question is how you can access that will, uh, how you can know it. And from that point of view, of course, Burke was some, com- some kind of academic skeptic. That's to say, you didn't have a direct, clear insight into the will of God, as it were. You could interpret uh, it mostly indirectly by, for instance, uh, the way the world is designed and the way we are designed. So given that we are creatures of affect and sentiment and um, outraged by cruelty, it's reasonable to assume that we were designed like that and therefore it makes sense to to um, serve our mm. moral sensibility rather than violating our moral sensibility. So that's how he reconciles, as it were, 
uh, an abstract normative order which is there but which we can't directly access with um, you know individual moral judgment I yeah mean, right yeah I, I guess that a, a nice way to end this conversation then is um, you know if we're looking at the Hastings impeachment the one of the final charges if it's a charge I'm not sure that Burke gives at the end of the opening speech is I'll quote it I impeach him in the name of human nature itself he's talking about Hastings which he has cruelly outraged, injured, and oppressed in both sexes in every age, rank, situation, and condition of life, close quote. What was Burke's view of human nature? You were just talking about human beings as creatures of sentiments and so forth. Why does he choose human nature to be the final, you know, proposition, idea that has been infringed so violently by Hastings? Why has he not put the commons before that or the natural law? Why does he end with human nature? Well, of course, uh, human nature is subject to a moral order. Uh, so impeaching them in the name of human nature is impeaching them in the name of humanity. Mm. And impeaching Hastings in the name of humanity means impeaching Hastings, if you accept my description of Burke as fundamentally some kind of um, skeptical Anglican, which others have argued too, I should say. Yeah. Um, he is uh, um, in impeaching Hastings in the name of humanity. It is in the name of human creatures as uh, subjects of a divine will, as opposed to creatures of their own um, arbitrary, uh, whimsical dispositions. We mm. are subject to moral rules. You know, so I, I mean, one could even say, I impeach him in the name of the existence of an objective order of moral rules. It's the same statement. Human nature means humanity in that sense. That's mm. my reading of that. Right, that's really interesting. And I guess, I guess then that Burke would be open to theories or principled ideas that respect that nature without trying to make, you know, kind of rationally dogmatic claims to that objective reality or whatever. Like he's still thinking about it as a common law practitioner, would you agree, rather than a, a philosopher? Yes. I mean, uh, in other words, yeah, you don't, um, well, there's various elements that go into how Burke thinks about these matters. Mm. Um, common law is really um, a principle for domestic governments, yeah. governance and the organization of property and so on and so forth. This is a question of, as it were, global morality. So it doesn't just fall inside a particular jurisdiction or outside prescriptive law here, right? Um, it's humanity itself, uh, and therefore something that is transcendent to any national jurisdiction altogether. So it transcends um, any merely common law. Um, but uh, yeah, th th there are fundamental norms to which political governors are subject and they ought to recognize that about themselves. I mm. mean, it's a, it's, it's a moral plea in that sense. Mm. Uh, it's connected to natural law because it's the, the, the grounding of his moral plea. Uh, but that's, of course, a long way distance from uh, sort of 1950s commentators on Burke who thought he was some kind of neo-scholastic natural lawyer. Yeah. There are many, many uh, schools of um, natural law, including modern natural law, and that's a highly complex terrain. Mm. Uh, that there was a law of nature, uh, many people agreed, but how one acted on uh, and how one interpreted 
the laws of nature was exactly the field in which there was complex divergence. And, you know, one could piece together aspects of Burke's view there, but um, that's a sort of complicated um, process and would take us some time, I think. Yeah, right. I guess the final question that I have is there's a, a lovely phrase in your book where you say that Burke first deliberated upon problems and came up with the kind of position and then pursued that position fervently and defended that position. What's really come out of this conversation for me, particularly because I'm coming at it from this, this philosophical standpoint, is that Burke does seem first and foremost to be a thinker guided by principles that work in the circumstances, but principles that are attached nonetheless to experience, attached nonetheless to the actual, actual practical art of statesmanship. Um, I guess my final question is, would Burke have wanted to be seen as a philosopher? Yeah, and I'm not talking about our standards, I'm talking about his standards, yeah, as, as in his context. That's my, that's my final question. I think not. I think you'd want to be seen as a statesman. Mm. First of all, I think it's important to say <clears throat> that the character of philosopher is itself not a stable one. Um, uh, it's been, tr- you know, um, it's been transformed over um, history. I mean, uh, we don't think of economists as philosophers, but Adam Smith thought that um, his wealth of nations is a work of philosophy. So um, I see the very category as um, complicatedly mm. shifting, uh, but without getting into that um, sort of thicket, um, I think in any case, um, uh, Burke described, thought of himself more as, uh, to use a phrase he used, a, uh, as a philosopher in action. Mm. But by that meant he, by that he meant um, a statesman who'd act on principle, um, but uh, not an armchair philosopher in that sense. I mean, he was interested in the um, thick of um, politics. Um, he was um, interested in the complex business of politics. In fact, he was starkly opposed to um, those with sort of part-time interests in political affairs simply because it excited their passions. Mm. I mean, he thought politics was hard work, a hard work of understanding and a hard work of application. Um, And so he's closer to um, wanting to be a statesman. The center of his gravity is in affairs, really. Well, Professor Burke, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, that's been a, a really, a really interesting conversation that that's reminded me to to continually to look at Burke in his context, probably as he would have seen himself. I think that a lot of the problems come when we don't do that, and um, philosophers are probably quite responsible for that. I'd say, <laughs> but but thank you so much for uh, for for coming on and speaking with me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's been great talking to you. Thank you.